Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest on this 1st of March edition of the programme is film critic and broadcaster Mark Kermode. I met Mark in Bristol last week when he visited the watershed as part of his countrywide tour to promote his new book, It's Only a Movie, Real-Life Adventures of a Film Obsessive. And that's real, with two E's, of course. Mark held his audience enthralled for the best part of two hours with anecdotes from his career and opinions on films past, present, and in the case of 3D, future. Before the event, I spoke to Mark about his book, a sort of autobiography with films, inspired, as he puts it in true Hollywood style, by real events. And that's probably real with two E's. I asked him first to tell me about his earliest film memories. Well, primarily I remember most of my childhood being spent in a cinema. You know, I think when people remember childhood, usually they remember, you know, football matches and kids' parties and, you know, hanging around with friends and bicycling and all that sort of stuff. Well, I don't, I don't have those memories. What I have is a memory of going to see Planet of the Apes at the Barnet Odeon, of going to uh, Triple Bills at what was then the Rex, is now the Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley. I mean, the first film I have an active memory of seeing was Krakatoa East of Java, which I only remember a tiny fragment of, but I do remember being in the cinema and watching the film happening. So that's my first cinematic memory, although I'm pretty certain that I saw The Jungle Book or a couple of Disney movies before that in the cinema. And then after that, it's things like seeing Slade in Flame for the first time, which I saw at the Barnet Odeon and thinking it was just the, the most incredibly tough, gritty documentary about the British pop industry, which incidentally, I still think it's a great film. I mean, people smirk when you say that Slade in Flame is a great film, but it really is a very good piece of work. I had the great joy of um, touring around the country with a print of that movie for a while. And everywhere he went, I said, look, it's great. And people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'd show it to them. They go, actually, yeah, that really is great. I remember seeing Dougal and the Blue Cat and thinking it was incredibly weird and incredibly strange and that's still one of my favourite movies. I could pretty much recite the entire soundtrack off by heart because I had one of those MFP soundtrack albums that had the whole dialogue from the movie, you know, the whole movie from beginning to end. So that really stuck with me. I remember supporting a feature called Jeremy, which was this heartbreaking sort of New York love story that I saw as a support feature with Break Heart Pass, the Charles Bronson movie. And I... I never really fancied Break Up Pass very much, but I, I went to see anything, you know, anything that I could get into. If it was you or a certificate, I would go along and see it. And I remember falling in love to Jeremy, and I never had a girlfriend, but I did have that film. So that's, that's pretty much it. Everything I remember as a kid was to do with memories of going to the cinema and, and watching the movies. And I, I, I kind of learned everything I know from films. From the book, it's clear that you started writing about film very early too. Now, I think the word writing about is perhaps uh, I would say, I mean, what I did was I would come home from the cinema and because I used to see a lot of movies and I was, I was quite obsessive about them, I started keeping notebooks, you know, that had um, weren't really reviews. They were, they were more like uh, memories of what was in the film. I'd write the story of the film quite a lot. I'd come home and I'd try and write down the story of the film. And this sort of tripped over into what I believed foolishly, were novelizations. I started novelizing films that I'd seen. I wrote a novelization of 2001, not realizing that Arthur C. Clarke had already done it. And I'd make these, I'd type them out. You know, I had that old battered typewriter and I'd type out the story and then I'd cut them up and I'd get like a cardboard cover and, you know, make them up like a book and then color in the front cover and then stick them on bookshelves in the ridiculous belief that someone would stroll along and think they were real books and then start reading them. But what it meant was that I got into the habit very early on of writing down what I thought about films, even though at the beginning what I thought about films was just what I could remember of the story. 
Now, I can't have read your book and not ask you about The Exorcist. No, the, no, Exorcist sure. the Exorcist goes all the way through the book and all, clearly all the way through your life. So can you convey to me just what a, an important event it was when you first saw The Exorcist? I mean, it, it, it's almost hard to convey because in the end you're talking about a film and people go, well, it's, you know, it's only a movie, which is kind of why the book was called that in an ironic way because it was such a significant thing for me. What I remember was... I was about 11 when it, when it came out originally, and of course I was far too young to see it. It was an X certificate film, and they were being quite strict about what X meant. And I remember being in the classic Hendon and seeing a trailer for it. I'd seen a thing on Nationwide in which Sue Lawley had said, oh, there's this film in America and it's terrifying people, oh, you know, hysterical reaction. And I remember being really piqued by that. And then I was sitting in the cinema, and there were the posters for The Exorcist were up everywhere on the tube trains, that iconic image of Max von Sudo standing outside the house on Prospect Street, just the black and yellow poster, very haunting image. And I'm sitting in the cinema and this trailer starts, I went, no idea what it's a trailer for, and it's an image of a car coming down a foggy street and this very quiet, very somber voiceover and the car sort of pulls round and then pulls in front of this house where there's this bright light shining out of a window and darkness all around. And the effect was, it was like watching an explosion in reverse. It was like watching lots of tiny pieces come together to form a picture that you already knew because you'd seen it all over the, the subway station. And I remember this incredible sense of, you know, terror and elation and uh, fear and wanting to run but wanting to stay at the same time. And it really profoundly affected me. Now, of course, The Exorcist was playing in cinemas at that point. And... Um, if you went to a cinema like a multiplex, what we used to call a multiplex, three screen nowadays, you know, you wouldn't think it was a multiplex, but believe me, back then three screens was a big deal. And, you know, I'd be, be watching like a Woody Allen movie in screen two, but in screen one, they'd be playing The Exorcist. And there were nuns, literally nuns, standing outside, sprinkling people with holy water as they went in because there was this whole madness in the press that somehow the film had a, an evil embodied in the celluloid itself. That's what Billy Graham had said. He said there's an evil embodied in the celluloid of the film, and every time it goes through the projector, it's somehow allowing Satan to break free. And some people were passing out, and people were running hysterically from them. Well, of course they were. They were being sprinkled with holy water by nuns as they went in. So it became, for me, this sort of forbidden thing. I knew it was terrifying. I'd seen, I had seen people, you know, coming out of the cinemas looking really wobbly. And I just started to obsess about it. And I read the book, which of course, you know, when you're a kid reading a paperback novel like The Exorcist is pretty, uh, pretty life-changing. It's very full on. It's actually rather well written. And then I tracked down magazines that had articles about it. Uh, you know, it, it was the old horror magazines, Castle of Frankenstein, those kind of things. They do, but there were, weren't ever really any pictures of the of the possessed Reagan. They were they were all embargoed. So when I was sixteen, I finally was. You know, I mean, you had to be eighteen, but when I was sixteen. I, I was kind of able to get in to see the film, and I, I I went to see it at the Phoenix in East Finchley with my friend Nick Cooper. And I'd be, I mean, bear in mind, I'd been obsessing about this film for five years by this point. So it was a pretty big build-up. You know, the supporting act had been pretty good. And I went to see it on a double bill, a late-night double bill, with Ken Russell's The Devils, which is a heck of a film to see the first part of a double bill, because if you've ever seen The Devils, it's, you know, it's pretty full-on. And I remember sitting there in the cinema as the movie was about to begin. And I pretty much knew every... I mean, read the script... You know, I mean, I, I knew everything about the film. I just hadn't actually seen it. And as the film started to play, it was like 
That Kenneth, Kenneth Anger thing about the film was like a magical incantation. I remember looking around the cinema and thinking, oh, well, look, there's a, there's a woman in her 60s. She, she looks all right. She, she, and if she's going to be okay, then I'm going to be okay. And there's somebody over there. He looks pretty weedy. You know, if he's going to be all right, then I'm going to be all right. And I just remember that, that two hours as the, the film passed by me for the first time in just this kind of almost ecstatic whirl of... You know, I was terrified and I was excited, and it was, and it is, I think, a, bril- a genuinely brilliant film. It's very avant-garde, extraordinary things going on in the soundtrack. Very, you know, solid performances from all the cast. Really, really groundbreaking. Uh, you know, special effects and, and, and editing, and I just loved it. And of course, it scared the life out of me. And then my friend Nick Cooper, who I'd seen it with was so scared and he was my age I mean, slightly older actually he had to come home and sleep on my floor because he was too scared to go home and i mean since then i've seen it i stopped counting it the sort of 200th time because i've just seen it a lot you know i i, I wrote i wrote a book i wrote three editions of a book about it i made a radio documentary about it i made a television documentary about it i was involved in tracking down the missing scenes for the restored version i've met everyone involved in it you know i've become quite good friends with the writer and the director and the star but despite all that every time i see it it just all the pieces come back together again it's that thing about the exploding picture it just comes back together again and i'm i'm there i'm in the movie and it's never let me down yeah i wanted to ask you about that because you i mean you must know it forwards and backwards and the script and the music and everything so how what is it that keeps drawing you back you know as you see it for the 200 and whatever the time what what actually is it that you sort of sit down expecting to get out from it get out of it you haven't had before here's the best way of explaining it for me if you were a, a musicologist right and somebody asked you to study a piece of music you really like and let's take as a popular example the beatles right the Beatles have been written about by music a- academics and, you know, just infinitely. Oh, well, this is why this song works. This song has got a classic illusion. This song has got harmonies that do this, that and the other. This song has words that mean this, you know. Uh, it, and people analyse those songs. They take them apart. They they go back to the master tapes. They, they, you know, they'll, 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 they'll get a version in which somebody's playing the wrong note on the guitar and you can hear the engineer turning the switch on. They'll read the interviews. Oh, Paul did that. No, it wasn't that. Was, was that Ringo? No, he was out of the studio that day. It was somebody else. And then they listen to the song and the song still works. Now, oddly enough, we don't think of that as that strange because when you hear the song, the song works, right? It doesn't matter how many of the, you know, the, you know, the bass line, you know, it doesn't matter. People have this idea that if you take a film apart, the pieces won't ever fit back together again. But if it's a really good film, they just do because it's like a, like a Rubik's Cube. It's all jumbled up and then you put it in the right order and then suddenly it's something else. And the pieces just come together. The interesting thing is that when they went back and changed it, when they put in the missing scenes after, you know, over 25 years of the film being out there, I know William Friedkin, who directed it, was very worried that if you changed anything, would, would you somehow break the spell? You know, because when something works, maybe just, just don't fiddle with it. He used to tell this story about the, the painter Bonnard, who was uh, arrested in the Louvre with a paintbrush retouching one of his own paintings and the security guard you know grabbed him so you could you, you the security guard grabbed him and said you can't that's an act of vandalism he said but i'm bonard and they were going yeah but it's hanging in the louvre leave you know walk away so there's that idea that you know a work of art when it's finished it's finished but it doesn't matter what you do to the exorcist it seems to me to be genuinely indestructible I was remembering, because we're about the same age, the hoopla, the sort of sensation around The Exorcist coming out. And I was also remembering The Life of Brian, The Last Temptation of Christ. 
And I wondered if you agreed that that kind of excitement or that sort of power of the cinema to really kind of shake up society has sort of gone. And is, is that a sign that we've sort of matured or is that, is that something that's a bit regrettable in a way? Well, look, that's a very difficult question because I, I hate to fall into the idea of, you know, it weren't like this where I were a kid, you know, we're all fields around here and we had proper movies then with, you know, proper movies that had proper effects. We had proper people actually passing out. The thing is that every generation believes that the entertainment that they have is somehow superior to the thing that comes next. I mean, again, you, you hear it in music, you hear people saying, oh, the songs that we listened to, they were songs that lasted, you know, I mean, the time that the Beatles were around, nobody said, oh, you know, that, that Eleanor Rigby, that's going to last forever. We just went, well, that's a pop song. So I'm, I don't want to say that that's true. However, there is a part of me that thinks that, you know, there was something really indescribable about the idea that cinema was magical, that it really was so important that you could actually have riots about it. You know, you, you read stories about... You know, Pasolini's solo kicking off riots when it first played because it was a political movie. You hear stories about people being carried out of the exorcist. You hear stories about people picketing Clockwork Orange. You hear stories about uh, Ken Russell and his fights with the censors over the devils. And, and part of you thinks, well, has that fallen away? Is it now that the new boogeyman is maybe computer games? And yet, I still see films that cause an extraordinary reaction. I mean, I remember being at the screening of Irreversible, uh, Irreversible, the Gaspar Noé film, uh, at the Edinburgh Film Festival, and the guy in front of me passing out and being really pleased because I had to carry him out of the cinema. I thought, it's like old-school excitement. Look at that, it's great. I remember loving a Japanese movie called Audition and then being really excited to read Alexander Walker's review in The Evening Standard, in which he was so offended by the film that he demanded for the police to investigate the circumstances of its creation. So those things do still happen. But I know exactly what you mean, that feeling of it was something really special. I mean, I think it's to do with age. I think it is significant that the films that you see at a certain point in your life are like the pop songs that you hear at a certain point in your life. So I, I, I kind of agree, but I don't want to. Okay. From, from passing out of films, tell me about walking out of films. What, you, you've got rules about yeah. the circumstances in which you will walk out. Yeah, I won't walk out of films unless they include actual cruelty to animals actual abuse of children or Julian Sands. Um, I, I don't mean it about Julian Sands. It's a, it's a long-running joke, which I have to stop doing, actually, because I kind of figured, actually, when I was writing the book, I figured out what it was that I've got against Julian Sands, and it was that once, many years ago, when I was a cub reporter on Fangoria magazine, he was very briefly and passingly and probably unintentionally rude to me when I was doing a set report, and I've kind of borne that grudge ever since, so I apologise. No, I mean, I, I think that you should see every film to the end, unless the film itself actually uh, had abuse in its creation. I mean, I, I am very strict about, you know, abuse of animals, abuse of children, but of course, if you live in the UK, the BBFC are very strict about that stuff as well, so no film that's been through the BBFC usually has any reason for you to walk out. It's kind of a shame sometimes, because there's, there's nothing that really matches that thrill of, you know, indignantly storming out of a film. But I don't do it anymore. I, I used to do it. I used to get very, very heated about movies. I stormed out of Blue Velvet the first time I, I saw it. Then, of course, I saw it again, you know, a couple of years later and realised that all the things that I hated about it the first time round were exactly the things that I loved about it the second time round. So 
I've kind of made a rule, a pact with myself, which is that I just don't walk out of movies. I certainly never leave movies because of boredom, because you can be guaranteed, right, you'll be watching some terrible, dismal rom-com. If you walk out, the minute you walk out, the one exciting thing in the movie will happen. And if, you, if you've invested any time in the movie, you might as well stay to the end, so at least you don't have to watch it again. You can't review films you've walked out of. You can't mark them off as done and dusted. So even when I'm in the most dismal, you know, like Little Man, that awful, horrible film, I'm just thinking, well, if I, if I don't stay to the end, I'll just have to start again from the beginning. It's like you have to go through the whole thing. So no, I, I just don't walk out of movies. You mentioned Blue Velvet there, and I thought it was interesting what you said in the book about going back and revising your opinion and sort of seeing things in it. Do, do, as you get older, do you do that less? Do you, do you feel sort of more secure in your judgments? Or you seem to suggest that as you get older, you're sort of aware of, of what you don't know as well as what you know. I mean, I think the old, I, I, I do think the definition of intelligence is realizing how little you know. But I think in terms of responses to films, I've, I've, kind, of, I've kind of learnt to distrust any very passionate response because if a film really creates a major reaction in you, it, you have to be aware that sometimes those things can be good or bad. There can be a love-hate thing going on. I mean, I do occasionally go back and see films that I've had a strong response to and wonder whether I'm going to have that Blue Velvet experience again. I mean, the, 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 the big example for me was Breaking the Waves, which I hated. I just thought it was loathsome, misogynist twaddle. And I was really cross about it. And then my, my wife, Linda, had heard good things about it because a lot of people gave it great reviews. And she said, well, I want to go and see it. So I said, OK, well, we'll go to the, our local cinema in Southampton and go and see it. And as we were going back, I thought that one of two things was going to happen, that it was very possible that I'd watch it the second time round and actually realise that my friends who liked it were all right and I had missed something the first time round. But I didn't want to prejudice her decision because I you know I get fidgety when I don't like films so I said okay well you sit over that side of the cinema and I'll sit over this side and she did we sat apart from each other and the film started playing and and the minute it started I thought no I hate this film I just I really and the second time and I hated it more and as it went on I got crosser and crosser I was thinking I'm not reassessing this I just I was right the first time it's terrible and then I started to get this cold you know sort of sweaty palm panic that Linda was going to like it and we were going to have this terrible source of disagreement between us and by the end of the film I was in quite a state and we you know the film ended and people walked out and they were very reverential you know oh it's so much it's a masterpiece masterpiece you know because it was <laughs> because it was a dog you know it was, it was a handheld shivery all that nonsense and then I had walked up the thing with Linda and there was silence I thought oh here we go and I said so what do you think she said rubbish I thought fine that's it okay we're safe everything's safe but there was this terrible moment of a you know like well what am I going to do if she really likes it I'm going to drag it back in and go no, no you watch it again and you realize that it's rubbish the certain films that are sort of marriage breakers in terms of dividing opinion well I do think I mean I know I say this flippantly but you know there are some films by which you can judge your friends I don't know how you can be friends with somebody who doesn't like Mary Poppins I mean I really I just don't know how you'd get off first base in fact that would be a kind of, just a general thing. You meet somebody, hi, do you like Mary Poppins? And if they go, no, you go, fine. It's been nice knowing you and just don't trouble them anymore. Because, you know, I've done, I've done, I did, I interviewed Jeffrey Katzenberg in this very building that we're sitting in now, the Bristol Watershed. And I did an onstage interview with him about animation because he's the great studio boss who's, you know, behind all these animation hits. And uh, he was showing clips from what he considered to be, uh, well, apparently animations that he loved. And he showed a clip from Mary Poppins and I told him how much I loved it. And he just laughed at me and said, well, you're an idiot. And I thought, I just, 
you know, that's it. If you don't love Mary Poppins, you've got no soul. And I could feel everything about my attitude towards him changed on that, you know, on that tiny little moment. Uh, what about the Kermode blacklist? I know that Pirates of the Caribbean is probably on it. What else is on the blacklist you judge people by? Actually, I'm more open-minded than I sound. I mean, for example, you know, my uh, I have friends who uh, who do like the Star Wars movies. I have friends who do But the Pirates of the Caribbean thing is just so thuddingly dull. I mean, what, what I actually kind of admire people who like Pirates of the Caribbean because it's liking people who like marathons. I just don't know why you do that to yourself. And it's not short. You want to watch a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, it's a whole afternoon of overacting on the part of Johnny Depp. I'm, frankly, I think if you can sit there listening to that, oh, I'm doing oh, Keith Richards, but actually it's a bit more like David Bowie and his Anthony Newley period. Ah, oh, you know, if you can sit through that and enjoy it, frankly, you're a better man than I am. I mean, you, you talk about getting handbagged by Helen Mirren in the book and various other occasions where people come up to you and tell you what they, they think. And you say that you reckon unless you're, you're annoying 50% of your audience, you're probably not doing a good job as a film critic. Yeah, I think that's right. If you're not annoying half the audience half the time, then get your finger out. Because the thing is, you're not, your job is not to agree with people. I mean, I do, I do genuinely wonder what, how we arrived at a point when... Uh, in inverted commas, intelligent, sensible criticism comes down to, well, if you like this, then you like that. And on the other hand, if you like that, you like, it's like, what? When have you ever been to the cinema with anyone who was taught like that, right? You go to the cinema with somebody, you come out afterwards, you go, what do you think of that? That was the worst film I ever saw. People don't come out of films going, it was all right, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. And it seems to me that the role of criticism is not to tell people what a film's like so that they can just, oh, that's right. It's so that, you know, it's a personal response because look, the factual stuff is important, you know, where the film sits, what its history is, what, you know, what position it occupies in modern cinema, all that's important. Your opinion, however, is just your opinion. I don't think anyone should listen to a film critic's opinions and go, oh, well, you know, fine. I think what they should do is they should go, okay, I know what that guy thinks or that woman thinks, and therefore I understand what they're saying, but I'm not going to agree with it. I mean, I, the perfect example is I used to argue with Barry Norman on the television. I used to sit there in front of film 74, 75, whatever it was, and argue with the television. I know what Barry Norman likes, or I knew what he liked. I knew he, he didn't get horror movies. So when he was talking about how much he thought Phantasm was a stupid film, it's because it's Barry Norman, right? So in the same way as I'm sure there are people who go, well, if that's, you know, that's Kermode, that's the guy that thinks The Exorcist is the greatest movie ever made. The point of criticism is, is it's for a discussion. It's for, you know, it's, it's to sort of, you know, to start something, not to finish something. I, I, I just can't be doing with this school of somehow pretending that you are an all-seeing eye. You're not. Everyone's opinion is their own. And that's why I think you should just be true to it. You should say, this is what I think about a film, because that's how people watch movies. Finally, Mark, let me ask you for a tip for something you're excited about or something you think is underrated that perhaps people should have a look at. Something, well, I mean, as I've said to everybody, the, you know, the best film I saw last year was Let the Right One In, the Thomas Alfredson film. The, uh, you know, the, it's... Uh, this Swedish vampire story, which is extraordinary. It's turning up in foreign language films categories, but it, you know, for me, it should be in best film categories. I had the great pleasure of meeting Thomas Alfredson last night at the BAFTAs for the first time. I'd never met him before. You know, to me, that kind of film 
is the reason you keep doing the, 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 the job. You know, once a year, something will happen that will surprise you. I mean, the assassination of Jesse James, I thought, oh, blimey, you know, it's three hours long. It's a Western, which is not my favorite genre. It's a story which has been kind of, you know, I, I didn't have high expectations. I came out of it going, is it me? Or is that the best film we're going to see this year? Terence Davis's movie of Time in the City, who would have known that a, a strange, quirky documentary about Terry's childhood in Liverpool and the loss of his innocence would somehow make the most beautiful, spine-tingling, sort of crystalline experience of that year. Pan's Labyrinth, right? Well, okay, I knew Guillermo del Toro was a great fantasy filmmaker. I knew the film was a companion piece to uh, Devil's Backbone, which I like very much. But you didn't know it was going to be like the Citizen Kane of fantasy cinema. And the great joy of all this is that no matter how much mid-range, middle-of-the-road, boring dross you see, every year something comes along that you just go, wow, I did not expect that. I just didn't see that coming. I was talking to Mark Kermode about It's Only a Movie, which is out now in paperback. That's all for this edition of Podularity. But if you've enjoyed the programme, subscribing is free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box. I hope you can join me again next time for more authors and books in a pod. And until then, thank you for listening, and goodbye.